everybody. Welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm here with Andrew Vance from the Choose the Hard Way podcast. We've been, we're technically going um, in consecutive weeks, but I think we stretched this. We did a Monday last week and then a Friday this week. So almost a two-week break we've taken, but we're going to make up for it in quality. Andrew, do you want to say a quick word about your Choose the Hard Way podcast before we get into our big picture Vuelta Espana discussion? Spencer, I'd love to. Thanks for asking. And I think, hey, we're maintaining continuity. We said roughly, you know, an episode-ish. Yeah, week. This here is, we are. Hitting it. Yeah. yeah, I think it's in the spirit of the Vuelta that it's a few days later than perhaps we thought it might be. So yeah, my podcast is called Choose the Hard Way. If you don't know who I am, I'm Andrew Vance. I'm a former communications executive at Strava. I was a journalist for over a decade. And my podcast, Choose the Hard Way, focuses on how hard things build stronger, happier people. Some of the guests that I have coming up are big mountain skier and activist Lindsay Dyer. I've got Go Rock founder and former Green Beret Jason McCarthy coming up. And I think this will be a real fan favorite for everyone tuning in to Beyond the Peloton. But I have EF Easy Post team doctor Kevin Sprouse. Really interesting conversation with him about what goes into being a team doctor, which he has been for that organization for about 13 consecutive seasons now. So if you'd like to check it out, it's choosethehardway.com. You can find us on all platforms there, sign up for the newsletter, and you can also find it at Hardway Pod on social or at Vance, which is my personal social media handle. Love to hear from you all. Spencer and I would love to stay engaged. So if you have questions about what's going on at the Vuelta or about Choose the Hardway, me up that's a great podcast i i can't wait to listen to this dr kevin sprouse um interview i've always been curious about sports doctors and specifically team doctors like how that works the nitty-gritty of that so really looking forward to that yeah it's a great conversation and kevin has great depth of experience obviously with professional cycling and then in his practice outside of being a team doctor is doing some really interesting things in the high performance space uh, with athletes from a variety of sports and helping them to balance the demands of their day-to-day life, family, work with trying to be the highest performers possible. And then he's also working with professional athletes and a number of other sports one-on-one. So I learned a lot and do every time I talk to Kevin. Interesting. I was just thinking of my ride today. It's like, sports science we really don't know anything like i feel like everything we learned 10 years later they're like yeah that was wrong <laughs> so it's like are we ever making progress like what's going on here but um as i, I was, I'm gonna I was make watching, a, i was gonna make a prediction spencer i think by 2024 200 grams of carb per hour will probably be the norm i mean three years ago nobody thought you could do more than 70 grams of carb per hour here we are just a couple of years later and it's a miracle you can train your gut to ingest up to 120 grams of carb per hour. Let's just, let's be bold. Let's go where no person has gone before. Let's go to 200 grams per hour. You heard it here first. Uh, it's funny. You said, that's exactly what made me think about this. I was watching the Volta last weekend. Christian Vandeveld was saying, you know, when I was racing, because you know, they were a cutting edge. If you remember the old Charmin, what are they? Garmin Chipotle is what they called them. Um, I wish it was Team Charmin. That'd be interesting. (laughs) Tom Dumoulin's personal Team Charmin Chipotle. That'd be quite a combination. (laughs) Um, He was saying, oh, we didn't think it was possible to like do more than 300 grams an hour. That was seen as the limit. We were like renegades and now it's like 500 is the norm where 
it's like it's funny you're like i guess like you just could have tried like it's funny to be like all right 300 that's the limit and then it's kind of like with cassettes like remember when like 23 was as big as the cassettes would go and they're like we just don't have the technology to do a 25 or a 28 i guess it's more like market demand and it's almost like the Mach 3. Like, why not just go straight to the Mach 5? Why are we messing with the Mach 4? Just add the fifth blade. Like, What's going on here? So, so some of it, I don't quite understand this limiting, you know, obviously with the carbs, I guess you could like, you could just like literally crap yourself, right? If you, if you don't, if you don't train your gut for it and you go out there and you're shoving too many sugars and carbs down your throat during a competition, it could, it could go poorly. So you do want to train up to that over time. You know, this isn't about us, Spencer. It's about these world tour riders over there at the Vuelta. But I'm compelled to ask you a question. Like many people in the world of cycling, I went through a phase. I was really into the Scratch Labs portable book because the big trend was to make your own rice cakes. I did and that, loved it, stopped doing it, have no idea why. <laughs> well, here's my question. Again, I might be an outlier here. My experience with rice cakes was that every time I made them, it ended up taking me a lot of time, which is probably the reason many people turn to lab-borne nutrition solutions. And if I would try to eat the rice cakes while doing a hard interval session, group ride or race, nine times out of 10, I would end up aspirating that CalRose sushi rice and then i'd have a piece of rice stuck somewhere in my nasal <laughs> passage that i have to like snot rocket out did that ever happen to you or am i it's an hour very, <laughs> okay so yeah i should have clarified i was making them on sundays and then would take them to my office and then like eat them at the desk i found them great for like fueling during work and then you could go on a ride maybe at like 2 p.m and you'd be fueled but yeah i actually i never found them to be they particularly great on, on the bike food. I actually don't understand how anyone is eating them on the bike. Cause as you say, you're just, they're going all over the place. Yeah, I don't either. I didn't get into this with Dr. Sprouse, but a question that I have is other than for variety, I don't quite understand why writers are eating a variety of different types of form factors of carbohydrate. I guess it would get really boring if you were doing a three week tour or you're riding six hours a day. My personal experience has been that using a drink mix that's two to one maltodextrin to fructose, which this is for anybody out there listening, if you're wondering how you might do this at home instead of going out and buying drink mix, that's $4 a bottle. That's pretty much what's in all of these drink mixes. It's a two to one ratio of maltodextrin to fructose, then some sea salt, probably, you know, there might be a bit of magnesium. I'm not sure what you would buy over the counter for that, but I'm sure it's available, but it's the easiest form to digest. And I don't know if you're chewing stuff or you're doing chews, gels, whatever the case may be. I just feel like if you're going hard, you're going to run into trouble with choking that down at certain points. And you see riders at the Vuelta and world tour races, when they get a bottle now, it's often a bottle with some type of carb solution or electrolyte mix in it. So it's maybe 20 to 50 grams of carb. And then they get a gel taped to every bottle. That came from the world of mountain biking. I don't know if you've noticed this, Spencer, but they always, they get, when they get the hand up, there's a gel taped to the top of the bottle. It's actually taped so that when they pull it off, it rips open and then they either throw it away or put it in their jersey pocket or they eat it. 
personally, I find it to be really hard to put down a gel. And I know that there are some isotonic ones like SIS, but they can be quite viscous. They don't have great mouthfeel. I know that you're a foodie, Spencer, but the mouth, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the mouthfeel of, of most gels is not fantastic in my estimation. So yeah. I don't know. I mean, like a drink mix, you're getting, you're just like your energy is staying steady if you're ingesting fluid, but I don't know what the sticky wicket is there. Why go, why have rice cakes and gels and fluids? It's a good question. I think it is just for variety. I think the the thought is, I mean, guys used to do like ham sandwiches, like ham and cheese sandwiches during races. I think the races have gotten so fast though, you can't do that anymore. They used to just be chilling out there. It's like the dirty little secret. It's a clickbait at the end, like the dirty secret riders don't want you to know about cycling that like they used to just be chilling like all the time. Like I always joke, it's like they'd be like having super soaker fights back there and stuff. But racing so hard now, I, yeah, I don't know if you could physically eat a ham sandwich during a race. It's just too hard to get it down your gullet. I, I yeah, I, I do struggle with gels. I mean, I actually struggle with a lot of the, the solid stuff. It just it becomes so unappealing to me and I don't eat enough because of it. The drink mixes are where it's at, in my opinion. Um, I actually would love to have Dr. Sprouse on sometime to talk like, do I need, if I'm just drinking mix all the time, is that dehydrating to me? Do I need to be drinking pure water? Is there some sort of ratio I should be hitting? Because yeah, I would prefer just to have almost all my calories that I'm consuming on the bike through the mix. Um, I guess it also becomes like, how do you, you can't just be out on a training ride getting hand ups every 35 minutes from random people on the side of the road. I mean, you potentially could. That would be well, like cool, we we right? we can't probably. I I don't think I have the reason. Your friend, um, who's the guy who sold um, Redfin or the Zillow esque? Oh, company? Sammy Anakin. Yeah, he probably has people out there handing up to him. But I don't know if I'm at that level yet. Uh, he's he's on uh, he's full keto though. I think except end races, from what I read. I don't. Is that so? You, are you not doing like drink mixes if you're keto? I don't. I don't know what you do. I'm not a keto boy. I'm not a keto boy either. We need to have him on the pod too. Yeah. Um, super interesting. We, yeah, we, we both fell down this rabbit hole of oat root results and like how good some of these writers are. And like um, this one particular executive slash like now kind of endurance junkie was doing the thing keto, which seems crazy. Um, I think he, I think he was, I think he's generally keto. And then when he races, I think he eats carbs, which I, we haven't gotten to talk about this, Spencer, but there was a Wiggins interview, I think, during the tour. Actually, I think he was on Lance's podcast. I think maybe you told me about the interview, but he talked about the training rides that he did when he was on Team Sky. And it sounded like they were on actually the Tyler Hamilton program where they they would have no carbs. They would go out. They would ride at you know, like do basically like, a zone one ride for like, yeah, like eight not hours hard at all. Cause you're starving. You can't. Right. But hard. I mean, yeah. come on, eight hours at zone one. It was six to eight hours at zone one with no carbohydrate. And then they'd get home and do the like salad, fizzy water, ambient, it's ambient, nuts. right? That was like yeah. the Tyler Hamilton cocktail in his book. He'd do a really long, no carb ride and then be starving drink fizzy water and take an ambient and then wake up the next day which i guess that's that's legal actually right you could do that yeah, it's definitely legal uh the, not it's questionable how good it is for your mental health <laughs> like it does not seem sustainable i guess like wiggins was saying they had 
Tim Kerrison, super interesting guy. He actually left the team, interestingly, if we're noticing a difference in performance at that team. But he came from swimming and he had this idea like you need to be um, powerful, but also as light as possible. And it's a simple math problem. We're going to work out and not consume any calories and sleep afterwards. Drink fizzy water because you feel full. I mean, God, it seems miserable to me. Um, we're going to tie this into the Volta. This is crazy. Let's we're going to be able to do this. Mads Pedersen one day looked amazing, by the way. Oh, my God. Um, it was like a breakaway slash sprint win. Um, I haven't seen one of those in a minute. But he's on Trek Segafredo, and you might think like, oh, that's a really wealthy, well-outfitted team who's just coasting through Spain. Apparently, they've been like at hotel buffets, like public buffets, eating food at this Volta España. Like, that is crazy. Like, it's possible people at the Oat Route, which is an amateur cycling event, are actually getting better support and like better nutrition than these professionals are, particularly the one who won today and maybe the most dominant fashion of any um grand tour sprint this year no big deal just hit up the buffet grab some breadsticks i mean do they have do they have pizza with cheese in the crust at that buffet i wonder oh i'm sure they do i I bet there's some seafood i bet there's right a rice situation they maybe have a rice cooker situation and then are grabbing like fish from the buffet i it just was like a stark thing because you think of i think you think of the tour where they have like the diner van or the diner trucks and they have a cook in there. I would bet by the time the Volta rolls around, the budgets are, you know, getting a little thin. You've spent a little bit more money than you thought you'd spend. And nope, how, how are we going to cut costs? Well, let's just have the writers eat at the hotel because it's a continental breakfast and dinner. Um, and we don't bring a chef, but it, it is a reminder of, of kind of how unglamorous some of this can be. The next thing you know, they're just trucking in buckets of filet fish from mcdonald's maybe that's maybe that's the direction they're headed by the end of the vuelta when those budgets really dwindle <laughs> i don't know maybe that's a spe- that's like a delicacy in spain though a mcdonald's filet fish i think it's a delicacy everywhere on par with the mcrib it's a question <laughs> for you spencer speaking of budgets i think the perhaps the biggest storyline in the vuelta right now is the viral load and the asymmetry among teams having access to testing that can actually detect viral load. And I don't know if you read the, there was a piece in that I first saw in cycling tips today that talked about this, but are you aware of what's going on? Because they do have the same viral flexible rules i guess that were in place yeah. at the at the tour i think we should talk about this i, I know this is a big storyline i was just talking to an insider um about this right before we we jumped on to do this seems a little made up i think it's like pseudoscience like i don't think this is i think it's just something kind of the uci and aso just kind of made up like guerrilla science where if it's they've just come up with the viral load saying i don't know viral loads let's say six six per 1000 milliliters that they think you can't infect other people with that low of viral load and they're doing uh, a test that measures a specific viral load i've never done a COVID test like that i didn't know they existed um maybe they don't exist and this is all just a sham but yeah if if you hit if you're below that threshold your team can decide to keep you in the race we saw Juan Ayuso, who's amazing, who's uh, like a 19-year-old Spanish rider who's in fifth overall currently, which is insane. 
Um, and he tested positive, but his viral load was low enough that he stayed in the race. I, God, I don't know. I, I'm not a doctor. I guess I should say that up top. We saw Bob Youngles have the same test, positive test of the tour, and then went on to win a stage, I guess, which would tell you that his body's functioning pretty well. But we've also seen, I think it's 23 or yeah, maybe 23 riders so far leave the race with COVID. I, this is by far the most COVID-affected Grand Tour since COVID happened, which is interesting because we're the furthest away from the start of COVID than we've been at any point. Um, like we all thought this was going to happen at like the 2020 Grand Tours or even the tour this year, and it kind of never seemed to materialize. I don't, I mean, I, I maybe the fact that they're all eating at buffets with random tourists is not helping the COVID spread and, and at like the tour that they're, they're all sequestered away in their little dining cars and stuff like that. Um, I don't have any great answers about what the heck's going on here. And, and the course has not been good. I think it's a poorly designed course. Every day is kind of, it's either sprint. Today was kind of interesting and uphill sprint. Um, but that's it, all the mountain stages are all just like flat. And then there's one climb and it finishes on that climb. It, you kind of get a repetitive race. Um, it's not nearly as interesting as the, as the tour, I think. Um, but what's going to add suspense is like any of these riders could get COVID at any point and drop out. We saw Simon Yates in fifth overall have to leave the race or not drop out. I, like what happens if Remco Evenepoel gets COVID? Can the team have him stay in now that Juan Uso got to stay in? That's where it all gets a little bit fuzzy to me. And then this insider was saying, there's riders testing positive. Like Ayuso's test was an internal team test. Um, for whatever reason, the team tested him on their own volition. He tests positive. They never have to share that. So, you know, I joke that like COVID respects big events. Like I wonder, I mean, you thought Pogachar had COVID on the day where he got dropped at the tour. You know, it's possible he did and that he tested positive inside the team and they never shared that. And just thought, well, he'll get over it. And by the time Monday rolls around, when the race mandated test happens, he won't test positive. And it's, 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 it was this person's thought that that is actually what's going on here. I'd have to look into this more. Reading this story, it's not entirely clear to me what's happening. I'm not part of what I'm gathering from the reporting and someone out there wants to fact check this and holler at us on Twitter, please do so if we get this wrong. It sounds like what's happening is UAE and some other teams that have larger budgets have a PCR machine so they can actually, they know the viral load and they can take that to the race organizers when they have it's, I, it's for some reason it's it sounds like a, like a fifth grade math class or something where there's a kid gets the answer wrong and then maybe there's an arbitration process they meet with the teacher they show their work and they work something out they say well you know what we're gonna give you another shot I don't there's just you definitely something went about to a better this. school than I did uh, <laughs> I don't this, recall this, this, this didn't happen to, yeah this never <laughs> happened in my school I don't know. <laughs> I, I need to come up with a better metaphor, I think. But it sounds like what teams are doing, teams like UAE and, I don't know, maybe Aneos, some of these teams that have outsized budgets actually have medical equipment and they can determine the viral load. And the trick, it seems, is you have to do it fast enough so that before the race organizer gets your positive test, when they do their testing, you need to be able to show your work and say, well, actually... Yeah. You know, little Johnny here 
has a, you know, his viral load is, doesn't exceed the limit. Another question that I have, and it's not clear from the research that I've done so far, if you have a low viral load, does, does that mean that you have, that you're not going to infect other people in your immediate environment? If, for example, you're sitting on a team bus and if you didn't infect them, would they also have a low viral load? Yeah, that, that's the million dollar question. I Woo! think the thinking is n- no, you don't infect other people. I don't know if that's actually known. If it is known, it's not really being told to the general public. I, I have thought though, yeah, what if someone with a low viral load infects another person who then has a high viral load? I'm not a virologist. They they would probably be able to tell us. Um, I Also, what happens, I mean, if 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 that test is over the viral load limit, you were never hearing about it. You know, they're doing that internally and then it's just, uh, we'll see what happens on Monday. Let's test them again Sunday night. Maybe it will be lower by then. We can go to the race organizers and plead our case before the Monday deadline rolls around of mandatory testing. Every professional sport has had to deal with COVID. They're going to continue to have to deal with it. All of us in our personal lives have to make choices related to this as well. I just have to say, though, that I think this is another of those aspects of professional cycling that makes following the action really difficult. And as we think about the future of the sport, I kind of wish that the Netflix documentary series that's focusing on the tour, I kind of wish it was here at the Vuelta because I feel like we have some very serious drama within the race, number one. Number two, related to COVID. We can talk about what we think is going to, we can't predict whether Remco, for example, is, you know, I mean, hopefully he doesn't exceed the viral load limit or get COVID and uh, have to leave the race, but it's possible he's losing teammates due to other reasons. But he did another, lose two to COVID as yeah, well. So, yeah, so two to COVID and then Alaphilippe um, left to recover for the world championships. Oh no, he crashed really hard. I'm, I'm making a oh. joke. Yeah, <laughs> that is that's an awesome conspiracy theory that he wasn't hurt that bad, <laughs> and he's just recovering. I honestly, when I thought of that, I didn't say it publicly because it'd be mean. But I thought well, I, I, if, I just I just said the thing out loud. I don't think. He I was wonder really if we will that. see him roll up at Worlds. I've magically recovered. Uh, he separated his shoulder, right? Yeah, which. I don't want to. I don't want to tell him how to do his job. But didn't Roglic separate his shoulder and then popped it back in by himself and jumped back on the bike? That's best practice for sure. Yeah. I think yeah. HubSpot actually has a white paper about that. All you have to do is give them your email address and they'll send you fifty pages on how to do that and <laughs> fill the funnel for your uh, your e commerce business. Yeah, I'm curious to see what happens and if he's actually going to race at Worlds. That's it's a pretty severe injury. I had a friend of mine at Blake of Today on TikTok. He's a TikTok phenomenon now uh, after he kind of left behind his competitive cycling career. But he separated his shoulder in a bad incident involving a curb and trying to learn how to bunny hop for cyclocross. He made some great content around his AC separation, but it's incredibly painful and a very serious injury. So I wish you the best. Julian, we want to see you back at full strength. And I wonder if getting trolled by your own team director might be why this happened. It, it is a little odd that, so he crashes and then his team leader, Remco crashes almost exactly the same way the next day. 
probably just coincidence, but Alaphilippe is getting really hurt. You know, he crashed earlier this year and was in the ICU. Like he's not, it doesn't seem like he's recently going down. And then it's like a Remco type crash where he's like, oh, I'm skinned up, but I'm back on my bike. It seems like he's going down and he's going down hard. You know, it could just be luck of the draw, but I, this is the hottest of the hot of the hot takes. Are we sure he's good anymore? <laughs> I know he's back-to-back world champion, um, something like only seven other riders have done, but he's only won nine races over the past three years. He doesn't win, actually, at the rate he used to win. It's probably because these crashes are taking a toll on his body. Like, I kind of wonder if this is the... this He's entering maybe the Sagan portion of his career. Um, I'm curious to see how he... Obviously, if he, if he shows up to the Worlds and wins a third straight Worlds, I'm going to look like an idiot, but... Uh, just something to keep your eye on with Alaphilippe. Let's not forget about the Flanders crash. Yeah, it's crazy. We're just rode into a motorbike. I don't. Yeah, yeah. I don't quite understand what's going on there. I mean, both him and Remco should not have crashed when they did. I mean, maybe it, should, maybe it could just be dustier than it looks, but you'd think there would be more crashes. Actually, it's the crashes have been specifically on Quickstep. I don't think any other riders have crashed in uh over these stages so just some some odd thing i've noticed i actually thought that remco would break the road when he fell he just can't handle it he, the guy is so fit Un, like you see these uh like you know cycling news you go there after the stage and it's like a still image of him <laughs> it looks like a statue it's crazy i don't think i've ever seen a human this besides matthew vanderpool this chiseled I think it's that majestic shoulder to hip ratio that Botters talked about that I'm never going to stop talking about until I have Botters on my podcast, which I I hope to do at some point in the future. I've been talking to <laughs> Amp about doing that last year, but when I get him on, um, I'm going to dive into this subject. I continue to research. All I can find is that apparently the in the world of uh, aesthetics, 1.6 to 1 is considered the optimal shoulder to hip ratio but that has nothing to do with aerodynamics and every time i see remco on a time trial i'm trying to determine does he actually look different than anyone else was this a bunch of bs i don't know he's definitely aero i think a lot of that though is it's kind of like a boring answer but you also can train it just can you talk into that position and still produce power most people cannot, you know, that's what makes a really good time trialist is you can just contort your body into a really, really compact position and still blast out 470 Watts for 40 minutes. Um, I think a lot, I mean, a lot of people could do that on like a, a mountain bike position, but the further and further you tuck down, the harder it is to produce power. Like someone like Fabian Cancellara can do the same power in that position that they could do sitting up on a mountain bike. Remco definitely can get really, really scrunched. It's actually kind of unbelievable how scrunched he is. And I, I could not ride a bike if I was in that same position. It's how he rides his road bike too. His position is pretty out of the ordinary. So Spencer, going back to this idea of things that are really difficult to follow in professional cycling, I wanted to get your take on what's happening with the whole relegation situation and you're the expert here. You know way more about this relegation situation and points and how this all works than I do. I feel like in other sports, Premier League football, this is something that creates a lot of drama and tension and really interesting storylines, drives pretty interesting press. There's suspense. 
in cycling, I'm just having a really hard time following what's going on here. And it's making me wonder if it's overly complicated, not complicated enough, or is this the Goldilocks <laughs> solution? Is, is, is this, is this is just like, wow, it's so complex. You know, you need a, a PhD in statistics to understand what's going on right now. And you need to personally take Lantern Rouge out for an espresso to understand what's happening. Like, what is your take? It's like the, the system is idiotic. Um, like it's, if you're wondering if you don't understand it, like teams understand, for example, Jonathan Bodders and his EF team are like hurtling towards relegation. And then to add like another layer of complexity on this, if they get relegated, they're done. Like they're going to have to shut the team down because they won't be at any major race next year. Like the tour, the Giro, the Vuelta, any classic. If let's say Lotto gets yeah, relegated, no, no more gonna, duck cartoons on their helmets. No, say goodbye, people. If Lotto gets relegated, they're at all the races because they're good enough this year. And this is a three year rolling relegation window. It, it, the whole thing is stupid. You can get more points. Like, for example, there was the the Bremer classic that Wout Van Art won. Who didn't watch that? Um, and Arno Delee on Lotto got fourth, and he got double the amount of points for that fourth place than he would have if he would have won the Volta stage that day. So, like, the whole thing is crazy. But EF, the trap they're in is they're just like, as a normal team, like, let's go to the Volta and send our best riders there. That's not what you want to do for relegation. Like Lotto sent their B team to the Volta, sending all their best riders to these small races you've never heard of, racking up an insane amount of points. And they're going to leapfrog like Movistar and EF and bike exchange teams that are focused on the Volta Espana, which you would think would be an important race, is actually not that important when it comes to relegation. So, no, the whole thing is it's the UCI is not a good governing body. Just, just uh, going to spoil that little fact for people um and this is a really idiotic system it is nice though i will say like it's a nice thought to want to reward teams like alpacin or archaea who do well consistently and they should have a chance to get into the world tour and then teams that suck all the time like i mean i remember like astana was like so bad that they wanted to kick them out but they couldn't do it um but honor ironically astana is going to be fine not going to get relegated um so yeah, it's, it's like, that's a nice thought. Like I, people are like, this is unfair. It's like, well, it's also unfair to let you be bad for three straight years. And then good teams don't get to take your spot. Like goodness should be rewarded in professional sports, but they should really just reward these points at world tour races. That's the crazy part. It'd be like the premier league's exciting. Cause everyone knows like everyone plays each other equal number of times. So it's a pretty fair relegation and promotion system. It'd be like if you could just play games in the week during like local teams and then rack up promotion points that way, like that wouldn't make any sense. And that's essentially what's happening here. And COVID actually this is where COVID comes back. Like Simon Yates got kicked out due to COVID. He was asymptomatic, but I guess his viral load was high or maybe, I don't know, maybe they didn't protest it. He gets kicked out and like bike exchange loses all those points. Like let's say he finishes fifth overall, that's a significant amount of points. And like, what if they get relegated because of that? So like a lot of these COVID positives could have like dire relegation consequences. Really simple, easy to follow. It's what every fan was hoping for when this three-year. <laughs> yeah. Three, rolling, a three-year rolling, window. Just, it's just a simple three-year rolling window of relegation <laughs> uh, of teams controlled by a variety of oligarchs and despots. 
So I think this is really the optimal setup for the sport going forward. And I know it's like, this is maybe unpopular, but this could all be solved if like, they just didn't let the small teams at the Grand Tour, like does BH Burgos need to be at this Vuelta? Like, shouldn't that just be EF if they get relegated? That's where the whole thing starts to not make a lot of sense is like some good teams like Movistar could be out. Like they're not even allowed to come to the Tour de France next year. But I mean, what were some of those teams? I'm even having trouble remembering who they were. Like B&B hotels will be there. That's where it starts to get crazy. I just want Drone Hopper to create a DAO or mint NFTs so that I can have direct access to the writers. I'd like to... <laughs> I'd have them, maybe they're on Cameo. That'd be incredible. I'd love to like send a Cameo to a friend where they get a shout out from a drone hopper writer. It'd be, I think I, I would, just invented a business. I, no one take that idea. Like they should just, what if I, they should just like float themselves on the stock exchange. Like I want to, I would just buy up shares of drone hopper. Then like I'm making decisions for drone hopper. Like that's the dream. That's what I want. I want to do a leveraged buyout of Drone Hopper to control their team at the Giro <laughs> next year. That's the goal going you forward. You might be able to collect things in that room that you're standing in right now and raise enough money selling them <laughs> to buy It's the possible. Team. It's possible. Spencer, let's talk about J-Vine. How many J-Vines are out there? It's like a Forrest Gump type story. Is this real? Are we going to see more of these talents no, rising from... <laughs> I don't think so. From sweaty... Uh, unused rooms and homes that are currently being used for indoor training? No, I mean, the J-Vine, great story, like Australian kid. Um, he was a professional, like he was racing at like a professional, low level professional. Um, won a Zwift competition, which came with an automatic place on the team, which is, that's great. That's hilarious in itself. Um, this happens quite a bit, especially in women's cycling. Almost no one ever becomes good because racing in real life is different than racing on Zwift, which is like on the internet, like a computer generated game. Um, J Vine, I mean, it's like a mix of, there's a lot of really good riders. Like we were looking at those Oat Root results and like Ilmo Zacharin was like sixth at the Oat Root, which is a, a amateur race getting beat by like guys with jobs. And the, I, I think he was a contender at the Giro like four years ago and is still a professional. So like, there's a lot of people that are good cyclists. At J Vine, I mean, J Vine is very good, like close to like seven watts per kilos for 20 minutes. There's not a lot of like legitimate people on Zwift doing that. But the thing that separates Vine is like he's good at racing. You know, I don't want to throw people under the bus, but like there's Americans who are incredible. Like think of Joe Dombrowski, like the guy is like a machine. I um, mean, if you just hooked him up to like an e racing rig, he would be in, like best in the world. Maybe not quite literally, but one of them. And then it, that's just a lot of these, you know, it's hard to go to Europe and you like learn how to race. Like the mechanics of racing are really, really tough, especially in Europe. Jay Vine, I think his uniqueness is not only his ability just to throw down a ton of watts and not weigh very much, but he's really good at reading races. I mean, to come into this race and win two stages and it, like pretty like, like dominant fashion, almost racing like Wout Van Aert-esque at the beginning of stages. Like there, there's not that many people with that confidence, that skill in like bike handling and racecraft, and then also having a massive engine. I think it's a pretty unique skill. I don't see a ton of like Vine clones happening. Spencer, how many people in Boulder where you live saw Jay Vine's success and now think, you know what? I'm 37. I've won a couple Cat 3 races. I think I've got a shot at the world tour. Oh, 
probably everybody. I mean, but that, I think that was people were thinking that like before J Vine happened. <laughs> like, but I, I almost wonder if there's like a thing in Boulder where it's like, okay, yeah, he won a wealth stage, but could he win Mount Evans? I don't think so. I mean, it's a different beast over here. I think that's more the Boulder vibe. Like, you don't even want to be on the world tour because, like, that's not even real. Those aren't even real climbs. Like the real climbs are in Colorado. <laughs> like, I also have a friend who maybe is listening to this. Um, is at a local race. There's a Kahu Rual rider, which is a team that did the Vuelta like every year until just recently. Like very good team. Um, and this this guy clearly won the race. Like he broke away late, won, and I was like, why didn't you mark him? And he's like, I didn't, I didn't know this guy. Like who is this guy? Like. He's not even like, he's not even top 10 at Mount Evans. It's like, yeah, no, he's like on the world tour, like maybe follow him. So I think in Boulder, like they don't even consider the world tour that hard. You know, they could all be winning the tour if they wanted, but they're too busy doing Mount Evans. Spencer, I've got two more questions and I'm going to have to jump. We've got some chicken thighs on the grill right now. I'm going to have to go flip them. But one question that I have pertaining to Remco's crash the other day. Are you aware of any situation in the world tour where we've had a rider in a position to potentially win or leading the race crashes? If you look at Remco, lost a significant amount of shorts or bibs. Primos, I know last year, I think he had some double cheek swaths of bib missing. Has anyone ever had to stop and actually change their bibs? Yeah, it's a great question. Great question. Think about this a lot. It did happen. It happened. God, what was the year? I think it was, was it might've been 2008 tour. Thomas DeGent, I believe a young Thomas DeGent gets like hit by a car. It's a terrible video. Um, like this car tries to pass the breakaway and like slams into the whole break and DeGent gets like tossed into a field, lands in a barbed wire fence, like no shorts left. Like there's no fabric left there. And then when you see him riding again, he is, he magically has normal pants on. So like at some point he must have had to change his pants in between the crash and and getting back on his bike. Was he able to stay arrow? Do you think? No, I, I definitely don't think. Yeah, I think he had to sacrifice the race. Like the breakaway was lost. He was never. I actually think he was like not the same rider for like years. And then if you remember, he might have podiumed at the 2012 Giro d'Italia, which was like his coming back party. Here's another brain teaser. And again, I'd love to hear from people on Twitter. I'm at Vance or at Hardway Pod. Spencer, you're at? Oh, BTP Cycling. Love to hear from you all. What do you all think? If Taco Vanderhorn wrecked in a race and lost some skin and had some bibs flapping in the wind, does he continue? Or does he feel that he's so arrow compromised and leaking so many watts that he just packs it in? Yeah, he probably packs it in. I mean, that guy is arrow obsessed. I mean, to like, I guess in his defense, I do admire these. I mean, I don't know Taco Vanderhorn's numbers, but it's very possible that he's not. And to go back to Vine, like, there's these amazingly strong random people like he got on Zwift on a Tuesday night in the middle of winter and he's like what the heck's going on like is Fabian Cancellara cloned and now there's a hundred of them and they're all on this program but I, I would bet Taco Vanderhorn does not have world tour power and he's just figured out a way to go super fast by like optimizing his arrow position 
and he's made a career out of it. So that that is like pretty admirable. But yeah, I bet he would not be able to to do that. I mean, once you're once you're in the arrow mindset, any type of flapping. I bet if he lost two pounds during a stage and his jersey was flapping a little bit, he'd, he'd pull over. You can't have that. Yeah, I think that'd be the. To be clear, I love Taco Vanderhorn. I love what he's bringing into the sport, and few riders have been as influential on the style and equipment setup of all riders as he has. Because if you think back, I think probably three years ago is the first time that we really started to see coverage of the bars he was using, the incredibly narrow setup, rotating the levers inward. And now it's commonplace. I mean, at the time, people were like, this guy's nuts. And Adam Hansen was doing it before him. I think Adam Hansen always ran 36 centimeter bars and you know he had a really extreme saddle to bar drop he was very arrow obsessed as well but taco has certainly taken it to another level and you go out to your local group ride if you have a group ride larger than four people and that's probably what you're going to see these days really narrow bars grifters rotated inwards skin suits like it's all taco all the time so Spencer, I'm going to have to bounce in a minute. When we take a look at the GC right now, like let's just uh let's again, like let's play uh let's play a game here. We don't know what's going to happen with COVID obviously, but if we take Remco and Primos out of the equation, let's say they end up not finishing the race, who do you see winning? Oh my god. It's a crazy question. Um no, so Enric Moss. I mean, I'm like high on I'm as high on Moss as I've ever been. The guy is unbelievably good for viewing it through the window of Enric Moss. Um, Evanapol had like a shock and on attack on the stage six and Moss didn't get dropped, which is unbelievable. Um, he doesn't tend to fade once he's this good. I definitely think he's could finish second or th- second or third. If Evanapol has issues, he could potentially even win. Uh, my question for you is Remco Evanapol going to win this Falta? No, no. I, you know, it sounds crazy. People think we're crazy people. Like I'm now looked as like a climate denier because I'm still, I'm like looking at Remco after the stages and I'm like, I don't know. He looks tired. He, he's, he's not as peppy as he was a week ago. I think he's getting tired. So I, I do think he's going to struggle on Sunday, which is stage 15. And then uh, stage 20 It's like, I don't know if people remember 2015, but Tom Dumoulin was this young, hot kid ripping through the race oh he's got this in hand stage 20 rolls around almost exact same a replica of the stage 20 we're going to get this year and he just got throttled lost like eight minutes on that stage the vuelta is a wild race you don't know what's going to happen as is often the case in grand tour racing but i'm just going to go with i'm i'm looking for a showdown between wilco kelderman and miguel angel lopez that's what i see happening (laughs) lopez i mean the guy is is getting dropped consistently. Wilco, Wilco took back like 10 minutes two days ago. So I'm my, my ears perked up. My spidey sense perked up. Wilco's got something cooking over here. Um, w- one question for you. Is enough being made of the fact that Roglic had a broken back four weeks ago and is now second in GC at the Volta? I feel like people are like glossing over that. Twitter certainly got upset. But they're just like, yeah, like, nah, he's not very good. Like the man had a broken back <laughs> like yeah, recently. It's, it's nuts. I mean, pro cycling is inhuman. The athletes, I mean, they're highly incentivized to continue no matter what happens. And their will to compete is almost unparalleled. 
it's it's very difficult to imagine someone incurring the injuries that he had and continuing it all and the fact that he went on as long as he did and that he then turned around and came back even though Evanapool is in the lead now like his performance given the circumstances is pretty inhuman and then one more question for you before you go i think i just said that in the last one but Matt Pedersen wins today. Guys looked awesome all race. Actually, the best I've ever seen Matt Pedersen by a long shot. The world's course is perfect for him. He's not going because he's like, well, I've had a busy year. I'm doing the tour in the Vuelta. He could just have left. He could be going home right now. He does not have to finish this Vuelta España. What is going on there? This is one of the strangest decisions I've seen in a long time. You rarely see a rider who could win worlds on the form of their life, just not go to worlds. Uh, do you think there's like something deeper or does he just really need to spend time with his kids? It's like he says. There's something deeper and he knows that Alaphilippe is going to be coming back hard from this shoulder separation and is going to dominate worlds. So why even show up? <laughs> he knows the fix is in. He's like, this guy's going home to rest. Um, I guess potentially it's in Australia and that's just really far away and he doesn't want to do it. I don't know. The whole thing seems weird. That's a big deal to win world championships. I, I I'm, I'm going to keep looking into this. I know it doesn't add up to me. Yeah, we could, let's dig into it more the next time we talk. I was checking out the world's course. What are your thoughts on the course? Um, I've not looked into it enough other than that. I knew it was too hard for Caleb Ewan. Right about hard enough for Mats Pedersen and the I'm, Belgians will quibble. Will, yeah, will, that's, that's one of the things I was wondering with mods when I looked at the course, like all world's courses, punishing. And I haven't looked at the actual course profile. It's a circuit, obviously. The aggregate amount of climbing was a lot. I don't remember the total off the top of my head, but I wonder if that was a mitigating factor. If he thought, hey, this is just on the other side of what's feasible for me to actually show up and be a winner and I'm not going to go there and go all the way to Australia to just ride around and that's true but lose right the the thing you always want to think about with world's courses is they always seem harder that I you could I could just go back and pull every article about a world's course and then play it next to the race and the race is always more compact than you think it's going to be because these have never been right they're brand new courses and we look at them and go, oh my, that's a lot of climbing. It's like, well, that's a lot of climbing for us. But like some of these sprint stages at the tour were, were like right. 9,000 feet of climbing. You know, it's like these guys are so, so good at getting over climbs that I tend to, like we saw last year, where it's like that was a tough, tough race, but it was together until Al Philippe attacked to win. How do you think Cavendish is going to do? <laughs> he's he's going to win. Um, no, I mean, is he going? I, I don't know. There's no way. That would be hilarious. Um, I know some teams... He's the national champion though, right? I think you can decline. That- I know some teams are having a hard time filling out their rosters, probably because of the Pedersen thing you just laid out. Like, am I really going to fly around to the other side of the world just to ride around in circles? Yeah. I just want to point out, so I Googled 2023 Cycling World Championships course. The thing that's... UCI, you need to get someone on top of your SEO and, and uh, digital game. It's not taking me somewhere where I can get the information that I need. That's my tech critique for today. Uh, yeah, 
I don't have anything further on that topic. The next time we talk, Spencer, is something I'd really like to talk about that we don't have time to get into today, but maybe this is a cliffhanger. Not that we need one to keep all of the passionate fans coming back, fish fillet. But I'm just wondering what kind of rumors you've been hearing. I mean, you've got this, you brought this buffet heat today. You're spitting hard with the buffet, <laughs> buffet yeah. insider. Yeah. What have you got coming out of the Tour de France? Like, there must be some insights. We've now got this conspiracy theory around Tade potentially having had a low viral load that was concealed. Like, what else have we got? This is the, the Tade bridge on that theory was my creation. I did not hear that. I heard that things are being hidden, and then I, I made the bridge to Tade, just to clarify. I, thank you for clarifying, but I know that you might have heard some things from some little birds in other areas. Well, well, yeah, you'll just have to tune in next week. At some, at some time next week, we will, we will appear in your podcast player. Look forward to it. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Yeah. Thank you, Spencer. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We will talk to you later. Bye.